This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. President Joe Biden, in his State of the Union address last week, appeared defiant, energized, and claimed to take on the Republican Party. Yes Magazine's Chris Winters called such addresses, quote, the best uninterrupted opportunity presidents have to shape public perceptions of their administration and the country as a whole. But he concluded that, quote, Biden is past his prime. Chris Winters is my colleague and senior editor at Yes Magazine, specializing in democracy and economy. His latest story about Biden's State of the Union address is called Battle Ready. Biden is playing the long game. And you can read that op-ed at yesmagazine.org. Welcome to the program, Chris. Hi, Sonali. Thank you for having me. So uh, Biden, when I watched the State of the Union address, s- certainly seemed like he, you know, had maybe one too many cups of coffee. Um, there was a lot of energy. In fact, at times there was almost too much energy. He sort of ran past some sentences a little too fast. But in general, he, you know, he seemed energetic, which I'm assuming is very much a response to the the concern that people have that he might be getting too old to consider running for second term. What do you think? I, I think that's probably a lot of what played into it and that Biden really knew that he had to go out there and show that he was up for the challenge, assuming that he was going to run again. Um, and certainly if he had come out there and he, he and he was in, quote, you know, sleepy mode or something like that, or just had a lackluster performance, that would be the dominating message going away. Instead, what we get is a message of, you know, it, it's dark Brandon lasering out the Republicans and and and, you know, turning things around. So as a speech goes, yes, it, it was, I think aimed toward dispelling that notion. Now he's got to continue it for two more years if that's where he's going with it. That's the trick. Right. So let's talk about what um, was the uh, kind of message that he was trying to send. Um, You know, it's always a challenge, I think, for presidents who, you know, they can't point out that everything is going beautifully in the country um, because they do need to show that they will play a role to fix things. Um, But they, you know, they so it can't be all doom and gloom and it can't be everything is hunky dory. Uh, So he did he did he pinpoint those places that really needed attention accurately enough, right? For from when Trump was president, everything was terrible and only Trump could fix the story. How did Biden differ? I, well, I think Biden made an effort to uh, trumpet the successes that he has had so far with his administration. And, you know, we have, relatively speaking, had a pretty good run of it for the past couple of years. We had the lowest unemployment rate um, since World War II. Uh, we have the lowest poverty and uninsured rates. Uh, we have lower trade deficits. We're seeing record new business starts. Uh, GDP is going up. Even average wages are going up. When you look at it from a macroeconomic perspective, things are going relatively well. Now, it isn't, of course, all, all roses. And, you know, as the adage goes, you know, when you're unemployed, the unemployment rate is 100%. Um, we all have our perceptions of what's happening, but there are real problems out there that he needs to address. And I think that, you know, the State of the Union is not a good place to really go deep on any one particular issue. And that's kind of what's necessary. Like, for example, climate change. 
it's going to be the defining issue for generations to come. And yet it was kind of sandwiched in between a couple of other things. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we were one and done with it and we we're moving on to assault weapon bans, which is another issue that, you know, you need to go deep on. And we have all the other issues about, you know, immigration. You need to go deep on those. So this isn't the place where he could actually do that. He had to just name check them and move on. And so the key, again, is the follow through. Um, he needs to be telling a story that is cohesive that the American people are going to respond to and internalize and also kind of say, look, you know, we've got issues. He'll actually say that. He's like, folks, look, it's like this. And he will, um, you know, articulate that he has potential solutions for some of these endemic problems that we're dealing with. And and that's that's the trick, really. But really, storytelling isn't the uh, the the b biggest strength for Democrats, right? That's where Republicans, unfortunately, tend to shine. Even a Democratic president like Barack Obama, um, who was very eloquent, tended to get too wonkish, right? And so, how how did Biden fare on that issue of of being a good storyteller, really convincing? your audience that you're doing what the country needs? I, I, well, I think that if you were a partisan brawler, you probably had a good night um, because that was where his power was coming was when, you know, I mean, you had Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, heckling the thing. I mean, the, the Republican caucus is a bunch of chaos Muppets these days, essentially, you know, and, you know, so, but he was pushing back and it was good TV. Um, is it telling a story per se? Not really. Um, to the extent that there was, it was like, you know, devolving to the mantra that you repeat throughout the speech. And in Biden's case, it was finish the job um, with the idea being that he's going to continue what he's been doing um, well so far. Now, and, um, one of the um, main issues that he brought up, which I think can be, can expose the Republicans is he brought up their stealth attacks on Social Security and Medicare. The Republicans know this is an extremely unpopular approach to take, which is why they tend to couch it in, well, we need to revisit the entitlement programs. Even the word entitlement programs has a built-in assumption. Biden called them out. This was, I think, one of the places where Marjorie Taylor Greene went a little nuts um, and started heckling him. So how? what do you make of how much he exposed them because his response to her was simply come to my office and I'll give you the report where it shows you know that yeah. they are indeed attacking social security and medicare well i think that you know he that is the weakness um and i think he was trying to lean into that a bit and you know the heckling actually worked to his advantage in that guard because he was like yeah call my office you and me we'll go at it and i'll show you exactly what you're talking about yeah that the information is out there it needs to be publicized it was in rick scott's um plan when he was heading up the uh the senate campaign committee uh mike lee is the republican from utah is on tape saying he wants to get rid of social security and medicare all right so it is a it is a weakness it's too I bad think. biden didn't have those facts at his fingertips that you just mentioned yeah i, I or he may have and it was just it just kind of got distilled down to call my office yeah. it's there <laughs> and then we'll have to see what happens in the campaign that they're gonna if they're gonna capitalize on that and, and bring that up 
And yeah, if I were running that campaign, certainly that would be like, this is the weak point. You go for that soft white underbelly every single time. Um, and that's where people are going to like say, eh, I don't know about the Republicans if they're going to do that. So this and was an opening. And of yeah. course, uh, the the social attacks, the new culture wars of the Republican Party, which is very much designed to distract from the fact that they want to gut Medicare and Social Security um, and beyond that don't really have much of a economic plan beyond siphoning money uh, upward to the rich. But those attacks on vulnerable communities, um, though, you know, how well did Biden do on identifying and pinpointing the attacks on trans folks? Um, there were some, you know, uh, abortion advocates that felt that he didn't bring that issue up nearly enough, even though it's arguably the reason why Democrats retained control of the Senate last November. Yeah, um, I think I, I think with with regards to attacks, especially in LGBTQ um, people that he's treading, he's trying to tread carefully here. Um, it is not much of an advantage to him, I think, to engage in the culture war aspects of it, because that is like the Republicans number one issue that gets them riled up more than anything else. And so I think he's got to, you know, be able to, uh, you know, point it out and and show how extreme it is but also making other issues more predominant within his campaign where the republicans are are going to have a, be a lot weaker even among their own people social security and medicare um roe v wade uh abortion rights that's a really strong he should he really should be leaning into that one hard that's another weakness it's why we have a democratic senate right now it's why you know that the Republican majority in the House is razor thin right now, um, and it's a winning issue for Democrats. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot of that as the campaign goes on is more leaning into the um, you know the winning issues: abortion, uh, Social Security, Medicare, uh, playing up successes, and trying to outflank the Republicans on any culture war issues. A lot of the Republican talking points are you know they're total BS. So he. He would be too well to ignore a lot of that stuff, but a lot of it has got to be, you know, countered with a deft touch. And it's, you know, it's too soon to say exactly how successful he's going to be able to do that, because it is threading a needle. Um, it is threading a needle. He wants to get people to defend folks, but he doesn't want to feed the flames that the Republicans are busy pouring gasoline on. You know, so. What did you make of Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the Republican Party's response to Biden? Traditionally, the party, the opposition party, will pick uh, maybe an aspiring future leader to respond to the president's uh, State of the Union address. I mean, I'm I was a little surprised that they thought that she was an aspiring leader. Um, but but did you have any thoughts on on her response? Um, not really. I only saw snatches of it um, because the response is typically even more of a theatrical piece and less on substance than the main event so much. It's it's the president's night, no matter who the president is and the opposition response. We say it's to showcase an up and coming leader, but it isn't really. I mean, you know, Marco Rubio did not become the hero of the Republican Party. Instead, people remember him slurping noisily out of his water bottle. <laughs> Um, when when he did the the you know, yeah the response and a lot of the Sarah the commentary about Sarah Huckabee Sanders after this was like it was more like a speech for CPAC than something addressed to America as a whole <laughs> and that's not something that's going to sell 
along among Americans as a whole, because if you're just sitting there spouting, you know, inside baseball for the QAnon segment, then yeah, I mean, people are going to say, for one thing, she sounds weird. And if you know what she's talking about, then she's going to sound horrifying. And so... yet, yet she, you know, the, the one quote that sort of stands out that she said was the choices between normal or crazy. And, you know, one was sort of wondered if she realized that she was on the, the, the other side of that dichotomy than she might have thought she was. Well, yeah, she was correct in saying that. That's not for the reason she thought she was. <laughs> so, so overall, though, um, did Biden, do you think, make enough of a case for running again in 2024? Because this, you know, and, and every state of the union he has between now and then is going to be one big campaign ad, basically. Yeah, um, I think it was I think it was the right opening play. Um, but the game is, in fact, longer than that. Um, a lot can happen in two years. Um, his approval rating right now is underwater. But you know what? Um, his is like 46% or something. I was just checking the numbers on that on the aggregate. At this time, um, during Ronald Reagan's term, he was at 35% approval. So things can happen. Um, and Reagan was one of the more popular presidents we had Um you know, in, you know, in my lifetime, I should say, let's, let's leave it at that. Um, so a lot can happen in two years. Um, I think this was the opening play. I think, you know, his age is an issue, but it's really a stand-in issue for his health. And if we really, if his health is failing, that's the only reason I would expect him not to run. Um, we haven't seen that yet. Um, he, yeah, he's an old guy. Um, and he, you know, he acts like an old guy. And we knew he was an old guy when we voted for him two years ago. And I think people took that in, in had that in mind. And if he's going to be running again, they're going to have that in mind again. What do you make of the uh, effort that uh, some progressives have led called Don't Run Joe? There's a petition uh, that uh, points out how President Biden has been, quote, neither bold nor inspiring, sort of echoes what you were saying in your piece in ES Magazine, to put it gently, Biden has passed his prime. Um, so there's a whole movement here that is, or at least they would like to be a movement, that is uh, suggesting that he or urging him to not run precisely because of the worry that a Republican takeover of the White House could happen in 2024, either via Trump or Ron DeSantis or the next fascist leader. Um, do you have any opinions on this? A um, couple of them. Uh, for one thing, Biden did be beat Trump and you know, he does have that going for him. I think that if we want to create a campaign to encourage Biden to not run again, then it really needs to be putting someone forward for that. Um, who do they have in mind? Um, and, you know, the, the chattering classes have tossed out a bunch of names over the years, but none of them have actually come forward and said, yes, I am going to challenge Joe Biden in the, in the Democratic primary. So, what, who does the progressive wing want to put up against Joe Biden? And I think that is going to be um, the, the decision that the electorate is going to have to look at, because just saying don't run Joe when, you know, we have, you know, almost certainly anybody the Republicans are going to put up to run in 2024 is going to be absolutely terrible. It's 
who are we going to who are we going to compare him with? That's well, I'm wondering, question. Chris, if you think that the fact that Biden is the presumed um, party nominee is what holds back potential rivals. You know, there's the statesmanship of of uh, not marring your party's leaders prospects you know the republicans don't care i mean they really have they've lost any attachment to you know kind of uh, ethics or, or or even tradition um so they don't care they'll they'll just come straight out and push past each other unless there's some political calculation but the democrats still i think worry about offending one another i, I think it's less that i think it's just a, a, a real cold calculus um mm. you know the, the, the Democrats have gotten, they've gotten pretty organized lately. It used to be that, you know, they said that the Democrats, um, you know, the, that the Republicans fell in line and the Democrats fell in love. Well, it's the, it's the Republicans that are, are now falling apart at the seams and the Democrats that are actually quite unified going into this. So as a party, yeah, that it's no surprise that they don't want to rock the boat uh, if they see that the calculus is going to go in their favor. Now, if yeah, you're absolutely right. The fact that he hasn't stepped out is certainly keeping other people out of the race because they don't want to rock the boat. Um, and it's going to be, you know, it's Biden's nomination if he wants it. Um, we don't see that kind of a schism within the party. If someone say, for example, from, you know, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, wanted to uh, throw their hat into the ring, they would do that, they could do that, and they might actually gain a little bit of traction. But if if Biden is still in there, um, we're still looking at kind of like the residual effects of like the primaries from, from 2020. Um, Bernie Sanders did okay, but he, you know, that was his second primary that he lost. And whoever's going to be assuming that mantle i mean say pramila jayapal for example she i don't think she was born in the united states so i don't think she could run but just as a hypothetical example um you know she could probably get a, someone or someone like her could get a fairly significant you know chunk of the electorate but i don't know if someone who is truly progressive can actually win a majority within the democratic party and that's you know that's a structural problem and then what about kamala harris and then what about Kamala Harris, who is, you know, the vice president is is typically, you know, it's the president in waiting, essentially. That is their one job. Um, and usually there's, you know, kind of the cameras are on that person for for a bit. With Harris, um, she's been kind of in the background. Um, we haven't seen a lot of her. And, you know, there was some early you know, noise about her taking responsibility as her pet issue, but it was something like immigration, you know, something that she's, you know, compl almost completely unsolvable without, you know, a long protracted, you know, um, battle and very deep policy reform. So she hasn't been set up to be that heir apparent, I don't think. And I would think that if she were to come forward um, and, you know, for one thing, it would be in tandem with, you know, not being Joe Biden's running mate in 2024, which could happen, um, and then stepping up and saying that that she could do it, she would have to actually get out there and control the cameras and come out from behind Joe Biden's shadow. Um, right. There's, you know, the inside baseball in Washington says that she's not being treated fairly, and maybe that's the case, maybe it isn't. I don't have any particular insight into that, um, but she definitely is not in front of the cameras when she needs to be to get 
you know, she needs to be on the Sunday show. She needs to be doing things that are going to get talked about, which is hard for a vice president any given day because they don't control the party. Uh, they don't have their hands on the reins of power. They are, you know, absorbing whatever good news or whatever bad news comes out of the administration as a whole. So she'd have to set herself up as being an independent to take say, yes, you can, I, I bring all the good stuff that we did in it, it, during the Biden administration, but I don't have any of the bad stuff too. That's that's a tall order for anybody. So. Right. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll post a link to your Yes Magazine piece from Rising Up's website. Good luck. Thank you very much. My guest has been Chris Winters, senior editor at Yes Magazine, where he specializes in democracy and the economy. His latest story about Biden's State of the Union address is called Battle Ready Biden is Playing the Long Game. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com. By becoming a subscriber, find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.